0: Permissions are hard, and they are becoming harder as we move more into the cloud-native ecosystem. If we go back in time to a point where it was just a single monolith that you were building on your own, you'll probably have a framework to manage the permissions for you. But when you are working with distributed microservices, especially if you are a polyglot, you can't use those solutions anymore. So you end up having to sprinkle a little bit of access control into every little microservice and component that you build. In addition, with the scale of modern applications, it's no longer just your services. There are a lot of third-party services that you have to connect to. Think about things like authentication, billing, analytics, and other stuff that you combine from external services into what you are building. Permit IO empowers developers to bake in permissions and access control into any product in minutes and takes away the pain of constantly rebuilding them. Ora Weiss is the co-founder and CEO of Permit.io and joins us today. This episode is hosted by Alex Debris. Alex is the author of the DynamoDB book, The Comprehensive Guide to Data Modeling with DynamoDB, as well as the DynamoDB Guide, A Free Guided Introduction to DynamoDB. He runs a consulting company where he assists clients with DynamoDB data modeling serverless architectures, and general AWS usage. You can find more of his work at alexdebris.com.
1: Or Weiss, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Awesome. So you are the co-founder and CEO of Permit.io. You, you've been on Software Engineering Daily before. You are here in, in August of 22. But for those that, that missed that one or anything like that, can you just give us a background on, on who you are and, and what Permit does? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So as
2: you've mentioned, my name is Ora Weiss. Uh, my background starts in as an engineer in the intelligence core in the IDF and i in, in a unit called eighty two hundred, which people must have heard of by now because we're not as good with keeping secrets as we used to have been. Um, afterwards, I worked with a couple of startups. I was in a startup that built containers before containers were a thing, but with a really bad go-to-market. Um, I was a VP of R&D in a cybersecurity company. And before a permit, I worked in a company I co-founded and uh, ran as CEO, a company called Rookout, which is a production debugging solution. Um, still on the board of that company, but, uh, working on it, I ended up rebuilding the access control for the product five times when the company wasn't even three years old. And that basically drove me insane. I didn't want to build it once, let alone five times. And it kept surprising me. And I realized that that has become a a huge annoyance and pain point for developers. Instead of being able to focus on your product, you're focusing on this crap. So, that's basically the premise with Permit, the idea that you'll never have to build permissions again. You bake Permit into your product, you get a ready-made microservice for authorization, SDKs and plugins for your API gateways and other pieces of software, and the ability to control it all from a unified control plane that generates policy as code, but from an interface that a monkey can use, or maybe even a product manager. Uh, so you can delegate that to other people. So when they come in knocking at your door saying, oh, this uh, user, uh, unless we add another role for them, like another billing role, they're not gonna buy. So instead of saying, okay, let's do another sprint of development to add a role to the system, you tell them, go into permit, click on create role, and leave me deaf alone, I have actual features to build.
1: Uh, so that's me and permit in a gist. Awesome. I love it. I love the background. I want to talk more at the end just like on um, you know your journey as a founder and what you've learned from that. I know Rookout, a uh, very cool company there. So, uh, I'm excited about that, but like I want to talk about Auth because I feel when I talk to developers, there are two areas that they sort of scratch the surface on, but but there's just so much depth that they they don't know about. And that's that's data on one hand and it's it's Auth on the other side. And I am I'm, I'm excited to be talking to an Auth expert just because uh, honestly for me I'm I'm excited to, to know some of this stuff. So first of all, I say off, what do we mean by auth? Like we talked a little bit before, like the, the three categories of auth before this call. Like what is auth when we're talking about auth?
2: That's a terrific question. So I like to kind of break this down as part of the IAM space, identity and access management. And essentially, it's comprised of a cascading water- waterfall of uh, three layers. The first one is identity management. So, so things like Azure Active Directory, Okta, uh, ping identity solutions like that, where you manage the identities of the organization on the, uh, from the vendor perspective on the customer side. Then we move to authentication, which is verifying uh, your identity. Against for often against the identity management. And there we have the common solutions like auth zero and cognito on AWS and, uh, uh magic and super tokens and fusion off and like a bazillion s- solutions today. And then we move to authorization. So we have authentication and authorization. Uh, both are referenced as auth, but one is auth n and the other is auth z. Uh, and people confuse them uh, even just because they sound alike. Um, And while authentication is about verifying the identities, authorization is about deciding what they can do or cannot do within the solution. Authentication you do once per session or per sessions uh, and then usually you get a JSON web token and that kind of carries the identity throughout the application. Authorization you need to do per request the world picture and policy can change in between um so very very different even though they sound the same by the way there are other things that cause the confusion so for example in http uh, there's a header where you pass your authentication token that header that has the authentication token is called authorization bearer token right uh so these are like um things that are kind of legacy that we carry with us but they keep confusing us
1: till this day it's it's, it's truly confusing so I, yeah just to make sure i have this right authorization authentication excuse me authentication that's when i enter my username and password right and, and if i'm signing into twitter or instagram or whatever I'm, I'm signing in doing that that's authentication authorization is even if i'm authentic authenticated they know who i am i can't Post a a tweet to your timeline. I can't post an image uh, on behalf of Orwise because I am not authorized to do that. Right? Only only the person that's sort of authenticated as as Orwise do that.
2: With authentication, yeah, it's definitely the most common thing that we people know about is logging in and that user and password interface or that login with Google, Facebook, whatever. That's called OAuth. Um, for logging in but it's actually becoming different now with with web off and and other technologies like that um, logging in through your biometrics uh, or, or through um, a yubi key or other kind of secret storage that you might have with you are becoming uh, additional common places to log in as opposed to just managing users and passwords uh, which can be, uh, well, let's say it can create a lot of chaos with, as people are not as good with keeping say, passwords and uh, uh, managing them and coming up with good ones.
1: Yeah, yep. wait, okay, so tell me what WebAuthn is. Is that the biometric stuff specifically or what? what is, what is when we, I've heard the term WebAuthn, what does that mean?
2: So it's a protocol to communicate additional data in a secure fashion from the device you're running on by having a chain of trust between the device itself the browser and the um uh website or uh application accepting the the authentication parameters so there's like this tr- chain where everything can prop be propagated securely and it can even harness a specific uh a hardware for encryption that is now available on uh, devices basically a secret storage as part of your cpu or uh or otherwise hardware infrastructure.
1: Very cool, very cool. Okay, I'm gonna talk more about that stuff at one point, but I wanna move deeper into access control because I know there are like different groups of access control and more acronyms. You know, I hear ABAC and RBAC and REBAC. What are these different forms of access control?
2: Yeah, that's also a great question. So those are policy models. Um, And even before we dive into them, it's important to understand that in in nature in the wild no application is just pure one model or another these are just boxes or templates that we can use to think about how we build our policies there are some cases where you are very close or for a while you're spot on on the uh, model but most often than not um, your application would be a mixture of different models and policies and uh, let's maybe start chronologically, like where everyone starts. You're a developer, you're writing your first uh, service or your first uh, uh, feature in the product, and you need to gate access to that. Um, you often start with hard coding, uh, an if condition in the code that just says, uh, you can do this if you're me, the developer, and otherwise you can't. And that's called admin, not admin. And that's probably the most common policy model in existence. Everyone does that at some point or another. And sometimes you can even stick with it for a while. Um, and, but, and that usually changes when other people start using the product or other stakeholders that manage the product with you start to ask to be able to do things, those silly bastards. Um, and then you often graduate uh, or at least, uh, move up into a model that I like to call admin, not admin, and super admin. So you escalate yourself to be the super admin. That's usually still hard coded. And the admin, not admin list, now that's, you just throw it into the database. There's like a table uh, of the users and each one is a field, like if they're an admin or not. Uh, the admins can change the settings for others. You can do whatever you want because you're God, you're the developer um and screw everyone else yeah. um and then and I, I, don't,
1: I want to stop you right here yeah. uh because I, I recognize this pattern i have implemented this pattern i didn't realize there was official names for this pattern so that, that makes me feel a little better I right? um in terms of that right
2: okay. yeah you know we all share the hardship so that's that's uh, something if not if uh, if not nothing um so you do that and then usually when you start to have actual customers um, and now they have requirements about how they use the product and maybe they have the different people that use the product. That's when access control lists will start to fall in. So you basically have a, a list of features and for each of them you have a list of users who can use them or not. Access control lists are also um, the or ACLs are also the are very familiar from the um, uh, from operating systems like in Linux. The the way you assign permissions to files is usually through uh, ACLs. That's how that's structured, or on the file system, it's uh, uh, with ACLs. Uh, but usually, you, very quickly from there, you move to what I like to call the bread and butter uh, of the authorization space of yeah. permissions, and, that's, and, and, and yeah, And sorry. to
1: stop you there, so when you're talking about ACLs, am I? into a multi-tenant world yet? Or am I still in like sort of a single tenant world where maybe there's different groups within that tenant, you know, but, but still mostly single tenant or, or, or can that work in a multi-tenant world as well?
2: Um, I think ACLs are, well, it can work both multi-tenant and single and single tenant ACLs. You'd still probably see them more in, they're kind of old school. Uh, so you'll see them more in monolithic, uh, single tenant systems. Um, but you, y- it's basically independent. The concept of multi-tenancy uh, is another layer that you can apply to any uh, authorization model or, or policy. Um, and uh, so now we're coming at uh, RBAC, role-based access control, which is literally, as I like to say, uh, or uh, figuratively, sorry, the bread and butter of the authorization space. Uh, it's the bread and butter because A, it's very simple everyone knows what our role is at this point, and everyone has seen it in a different application. So often your customers would request to have roles in the system just because they're accustomed to it, just because they've seen it in other systems. So it's almost, uh, when you, once you start catering to businesses, it's almost inevitable to arrive at role-based access control. Um, and role-based access control is b- basically means that you assign labels, roles, to people. So that's now the uh, property that you manage in the database, let's say. Um, and uh, you check which you translate a user, you translate an identity to a role. And then according to the role, you assign permissions and you allow them or this or deny them uh, to do certain things. Uh, here is also somewhere a point where people have a lot of confusion with authentication because authentication solutions also have roles um, So as so is that authorization or is that authentic? What, what's going on here? So the basic answer is that Arbeck is so popular that people kept asking that from the authentication vendors So they added that in as well But it boils down to, with authentication, to uh, claims in the JSON Web Token. Maybe we should cover that quickly. So a JSON Web Token is a cryptographically signed document, a JSON document, that one of its fields is a signature on the body of the rest of um, uh, of the document. Um, through that signature and through knowing the public key that the signature was generated with, you can verify that this token is signed by a authority that you trust, for example, your authentication provider. So you don't need to constantly ch- uh, regenerate this and go and check your authentication provider. If you see this document and the signature checks, you can say, okay, the information here is valid and the identity that is uh described by this document is uh, is the real deal. Uh, you can think of the JSON Web Token as essentially the passport that, um, also that's why then uh, there's that uh, framework in Node.js called Passport, that does authentication, that's that's essentially that. Um, so that document is what you ca- the user carries with them across their interactions with the application usually it's propagated either as part of the headers, the HTTP headers, or as part of uh, the cookies, which is also a header. So kind of the same thing. Um, so you have uh, the JSON web token, and now your authentication vendor can plug in another I- additional attributes, additional items about the identity as part of the uh, that document. So for example, you can shove in a role there. You can say, this. Uh, user, I decide at the login stage that he's an admin or an editor or a billing user or whatever it is that you have in your Snowflake application. Uh, the problem with that is that now you've coupled the identity and with the patterns of the logical application itself. So, first of all, if you change things on the authentication layer or in the application, now you need to have a contract between them. It might break. And now, also, if you want to change this, you have to re-log in the user. It's The concept of logging in is having that document. So every time you want to change something, you need to recreate that document, which can also create some friction and uh, bad performance flows in the application. Um, but that's the least of evils that people do, do there. Sometimes they literally load all of the rules or all of the routes uh, that, you are able to, that you should access in the application into the JSON web token. They basically turn it into a database. Um, and that doesn't work well because, A, you are sending that document for every request. So that adds a lot of weight. And also it makes it really hard to do dynamic changes. Um, and, and so in general, that's kind of a pitfall and an anti-pattern.
1: Gotcha. Um, and, and I, I want to ask on this because I had some questions about JWT because I, I see people in the auth community kind of argue about, hey, you shouldn't use them at all, or you should use them, you shouldn't use them, or you should use it, but you shouldn't add all this this stuff in it. So do you have an opinion? Like, are you like, do you recommend JWT, but, but not well, with the sure. garbage in it? Okay, that's, that's, is that your preferred method?
2: Yeah, JWTs are the standard uh, uh, practice to manage identities in your application. They're the best thing we came up with for authentication since uh, I don't know slice bread or, uh, or identities in general. Um, but we just need to keep in mind what this thing is. It's your uh, passport. It it identifies you. You are not. You shouldn't have your policies or your uh, attributes about the application itself inside your passport. Like when you're flying to. Um, another country uh, you don 't come in with in your passport all the things that you want to do in that country right that that would be weird sometimes you can add a visa that 's kind of like borderline like general guidelines on what uh, uh, um, authorization should do with you but it shouldn 't be like the strict decisions of like you can step into the airport you can step on into that room you are not allowed in that city Th- that would be just too cumbersome even in the real world metaphor, yeah. Um, and, and
1: so, so do you not like anything in a job? Like uh, uh, that's that authorization related. Like, would you be fine with a a role and that's it, or do you think and eh, not even that should be in your
2: in your so job? So even a role, I'd say the role. If you indicate a role, it should be your organizational role, which is something that is part of your identity. Because being an admin in an application is something that is most likely volatile. It's dynamic. You you be assigned it on the fly multiple times, even in a minute. Um, But the role that you have in your organization, like your if you're in the marketing department or in the um, uh, R and D department, those are things that are less uh, uh, frequent to change and uh, are closer to be part of your identity. So also things like uh, what is your uh, nationality or where, um, uh, where do you work or, uh, things like maybe more sensitive things like your, uh, age, stuff like that. Those, th- those can go there. Um, uh, but in general, if it's not part of your identity, it shouldn't be in your identity document, which is what the JSON web token is meant to be.
1: That's a, that's um, a nice way to frame it. That's, that's helpful. Okay, cool.
2: Yeah. And, um, what but what does happen there is a translation or hints from the authentication and identity management layers uh into the authorization. Um those are called claims. You're basically, basically these are things that the authentication provider claims about you. Say, oh you're you 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 have uh blue eyes and you work in the marketing department. Those are things that I claim that are true. And I put my signature on it, uh verifying that. Um now we need we have the opportunity to translate those into application level concepts. So let's even start. So the identity management, let's start at the beginning, I mean. Uh, the identity management, the Okta, for example, for the customer, for the organization, lists you as part of the marketing department. Now we're moving uh, through SSO, through XAML, for example, into the authentication layer, which is part of the Product that you as a vendor, you as a developer are, are building. And then it moves to authorization. So now you're translating concepts that come from the customer side into things that are in your application side. So you can write logic there as part of the sign up phase or logging phase that do that translation. So for example, if you are part of the marketing department, you should have the editor role in the application, but it, there needs to be some kind of contract or some kind of logic. Uh, that does the translation and that's called by the way entitlements the policies that translate um, identity or other patterns into uh, roles or attributes that will affect your uh, authorization down the road Um, and now this is all we're under I remind you we're under the umbrella of RBAC Um, so but we've covered the basics of concepts around RBAC here Um, And RBAC can take you very, very far. It's one of the most beloved and commonplace policy models, Uh, but it's not enough. Not everything is a role. So for example, a common policy that people want is only users that have paid for a feature can use that feature. So we can try and address that from an RBAC perspective. That means that we'll assign to you a role like paying user. So now you have... A paying user role and an admin role and maybe something else, but paying a role, having a role of paying is, is kind of weird. Also, what if we have different levels of payments? So we'll have different roles for that. Uh, so that doesn't make much sense. Um, and also there are even more dynamic attributes like your geolocation. Uh, I'm not talking about your residency. I'm talking like, where are you connecting from right now? Are you, you might be traveling. You might be crossing the border as we speak. Um, The time of day, all of these are dynamic attributes uh, that can change on the fly. But you might want to have those part of the policy. You might want to say only paying users that are currently in the continental US uh, should be connecting to uh, the US servers. And everyone in Europe should be working with the European servers. For example, if you want to address GDPR, um, uh, that uh, regulation around data privacy in Europe. So roles are not really the way to do that because this changes very dynamically. So this is where ABAC comes in, attribute-based access control. When you boil it down, ABAC is basically a a, a bunch of if conditions, a bunch of uh, um, checks on attributes that either your identity has, the application resource has, or the general context of what's happening now. in Permit, by the way, we have we actually created a concept of, that enables you to work with ABAC, like RBAC, and we call that a user set. A user set is basically uh, like a role, but instead of being defined by a label, it's defined by a set of conditions. And there, equivalently, there's a resource set. And instead of being a predefined resource, it's a resource that's defined by its attributes. And you can literally go and say, uh, I have a user set and I wanna check Click on some checkboxes and that will uh, give you the permissions if those conditions apply. Um, so that's ABAC. And uh, sometimes even that's not enough. Sometimes you want to describe hierarchies or uh, nested relationships. That's where ReBAC comes in, relationship based access control. So let's say you want to describe something like ownership. You can only use a file. You can only read a file or edit a file if you're the owner of it. So first, of, so there's the concept of a file instance—that's a specific resource—and now we need to be able to say uh, that you're related specifically to that instance, that you have an ownership relationship of it. So you can do that as an attribute. So, for example, you can imagine having in your user profile uh, an attribute of all the files that you own. Um, Or you can put it on the file and have the file list all the users that can access to it Uh, Another way to describe this that is very common in computer science is a graph Um, And this is especially helpful if the uh, if you want to have nested relationships So you can access a file if you own the file or you own the folder that contains the file or the folder that contains the file So you want to have basic recursion there um, you can apply this both with uh, ABAC, but REBAC is the more uh, natural way sometimes to do that. Um, essentially, REBAC is a subset of ABAC, a, simple, a more focused subset of, uh, of ABAC. Um, and with uh, REBAC, you also have um, implementations that implement your policy as a graph. In general today, as you look at the authorization space, there are two camps. There's the policy as code camp and their policy as graph camp. And they have pros and cons. Um at Permit, we're actively working on merging the two so you can enjoy both worlds. But uh in the interim or outside of Permit, it's a decision you need to make. Is my policy more around hierarchies and nesting, or is it more about dynamic attributes? Um is my am I going to manage millions of users, or am I going to manage hundreds of thousands and then you get different performance profiles for the, uh, for the two.
1: Interesting. And what are those two camps both on the sort of number of, of users and then the, uh, the more hierarchical versus, versus attribute. like which one goes into policy as code versus policy as graph.
2: So to, to, name some projects. So, um, the policy as graph camp is led by Google Zanzibar. Google Zanzibar is a white paper that Google published on how they do authorization for things like Google Drive, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and that, um, Google Zanzibar and its open source implementations, not from Google, but from other companies that, uh, good companies that went about to implement that. Um, that's, um, uh, really good for managing if you have a lot of users and you need a very simple Reback policy. So if you have something like Google Drive or YouTube, with, you basically have a lot of files that are nested uh, uh, under each other, and uh, you need it to be accessible to a lot of users, uh, then that's a good solution for you. Like If you have more than, I'd say, 10 million active users engaging with your um, with your um, uh, resources, that's probably where you should look at. It. But you'll be
1: it, limited it, to... It, it, is Zanzibar more the policy as code or the policy as graph?
2: Policy is graph, reback and policy is graph.
1: Okay.
2: Um, So you'll have the you'll you'll have the advantage of a simpler policy uh, and and greater scale and consistency, but you'll be limited by which policies you can write, and it will require you more scale to handle. And in general, you'll have less. uh, Your general performance would be not as good. Um, the policy as code engines are can deliver better performance in general, um, and by and these graphs that end up being like huge graphs that you need to manage provide uh, more latency, especially if you're uh, consuming them from a third party service. Gotcha.
1: And so is is permit a, a policy as code more than policy as code? I understand you're trying to merge those a little bit, but more right. than policy is code camp.
2: So we started with the policy as code because it applies to more companies. Um, Most companies don't have tens of millions of users that they're managing. They have sub one million users. Um, But they have complex policies that they want. They want ABAC and uh, all the different flavors that you can think of for that. Um, And there are, by the way, also other advantages of policy as code, Um, all the best practices of managing something as code. Um, so we've seen that really blossom in the infrastructure of this code space, being able to have tests, being able to have benchmarks, being able to manage it with ease in one single source of truth as a Git repository. Um, those are a lot of the good things that you get from policies code. Um, and not as much when you manage it as a graph. You can like download a subset of the graph or the relationships that the graph represents, but um, it's it's
1: harder to do. And, and is that because the policy as graph is, like, sort of messing with actual resources? Like, you're sort of pulling down information about the resources themselves or or even, like, the hierarchy of the resources? Or am I, am I misunderstanding?
2: The hierarchy that? of the resources and the mm-hmm. almost inevitable focus on instances as opposed to types.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So if you have policy as code, you have that in your repo, like, and, and you're doing more of, like, an ABAC type thing, like, how many how many distinct attributes will like a common uh, permit customer have? Is its is it tens? Is it hundreds? What is, what is that sort of order of magnitude? Or is that the wrong question?
2: Uh, it can really vary. Um, I'd say around the hundreds or sometimes we can, we also see thousands. Um, some, we have customers that are just doing very basic RBAC with a little bit of ownership or a little bit of tenancy. And then there are not a lot of attributes, but others uh, can really go wild.
1: Cool, cool if someone tried to i guess use um, uh, if they had a more policy as graph use case could they still use permit and it would it, would they just run into issues with it or what would that look like
2: so one of the unique things about permit is that we're agnostic to the technology itself so we created an open source project called opal uh, opal is open policy administration layer so we started to have it manage Opa open policy agent which is a very um, a popular uh, policy engine, um, but Opal is also uh, is it's an abstraction component. It allows us to work with different policy engines and stores uh, without um, tailoring e- each of them. Um, so while we started with Opal, we're already working with some other engines and can also work with implementations of Google Zanzibar. Um, and down the road through the, both the abstraction of the, that bridging component and the abstraction of the interfaces that we provide. So we provide, uh, the policy editor itself that generates the policy for you, both through an API or a UI. We generate the user management interface for you. So because we provide interfaces themselves, uh, and the uh, bridging components, we can, um, in a way that is transparent to you as a, cons- a customer, we can add more interfaces for you. We can add more uh, databases in the background and you just enjoy more capabilities without having to change anything on your side. Um, so we're already doing a little bit of graph based for our basic reback support, um, but there's a lot more coming in that area.
1: Cool. So you mentioned the policy editor. In your experience with the customers you have, who is generally creating the permissions or the policies and how are they creating them? Are they creating them with the editor? Are they creating them more in the, in the GitHub repo, just authoring themselves? Like, what does that flow look like? Who's involved with, with defining that?
2: Yeah. So maybe first let's tighten the loop around that. So we have a yeah, policy sure. editor where you can, um in a way that... Is very simple that a monkey can use or a product manager can use, as I said before. Uh, you can create roles, you can define resources and actions, and you just check boxes to assign permissions. And you can create user sets and resource sets to also do the same thing for uh, ABAC. Um, and that, when you do that and when you click uh, save, that generates new policy code in Rego, the language that runs on top of OPA, which is kind of like Datalog or Prolog and that gets pushed into your Git repository. And then through Opal, the open source project that I mentioned before, it gets propagated to the thousands of uh, policy decision points, uh, microservices for authorization that you might have deployed. Um, So that's the basic flow there. And then different people can chime in on the process in different points. Um, So early on, when you're just building this, this would be a tool that the developer would use um, just to kind of set up the basic policies Test out the concepts, see that this is suitable for the application. Um, and they can go through the flow and then add tests on the Git, uh, GitHub side. So you generate code, you see that it's good. You add more code on your own and you can iterate on that with ease. Um, and, but then there comes a point where you've, the application is ready and now you needed to uh, kind of do the business flow. Uh, You need to to cater to the customers, you need to adjust for the different scenarios, you need to do support, you need to do um, um, sales and uh, enablement. And so instead of the developers becoming a bottleneck there, every time uh, a, a new role needs to be added, a new permission needs to be checked, instead of opening a ticket, you just give this tool the back office with the right permissions. And here we're starting to touch on authorization for authorization. We'll circle back to that. Um, You can delegate this to the product managers, to the salespeople, to support, to compliance, to the um, uh, professional services or solution engineers. They can work with this uh, while you as a developer keep all the guardrails. You are the one that controls the Git repository that that ends up uh, um, boiling everything down to what actually happens. Um, But you don't have to be involved in every little step. And you can automate a lot of that flow as well of the testing it.
1: Awesome. So you mentioned how, uh, when, when you sort of author anything thing gets a GitHub repo and then gets sort of distributed out to these decision points. Um, I looked on the, on the homepage, I see sort of the code of using permit, right? You're doing like permit.check and basically passing in an identity and, and some kind of action, what they want to do. When I, when I call permit.check, what is happening? Is that making a network request to permit IO? Like what's going on there? Know. Yeah, no, that would
2: be, that would be a very bad idea. So, authorization can happen on average for a microservices based application three times per request on average without you even doing anything so if for if you do a cloud uh, um kind of uh, uh back and forth uh for uh every uh microservice access um you will be killing the performance of your application very fast even if you have cdns or optimization on the connection there so the way it works is that we provide you that microservice for authorization and that runs locally uh, within your VPC, ideally it's a sidecar next to the microservice you're catering to. And uh, when you do that query, it talks directly to that sidecar, which answers through uh, the uh, agent in, uh, deployed in it, uh, usually OPA, it answers directly from the memory cache that it has there. So you're going from your service through the loopback adapter to memory. So it's basically memory to memory. Um, and you we often see that these queries are sub 10 milliseconds. Uh, so you you don't need to be cheap around them. So you can add authorization checks so your application will be secure and you don't need to worry about uh, hurting your application's performance.
1: Gotcha. And so all the data that's needed to do that alt check is distributed to these agents. They don't need to reach out on a given call. It's, it's all sort of available locally.
2: Yeah. So the that's what Opal, the open source project that we created and is a component within Permit uh, does. So Opal tracks your Git repositories for uh, policy. And it tracks data sources that you define for data. And what it does, it sends instructions to each of the uh, microservices for authorization to collect the data that they need to be able to answer authorization queries. And they're and it's extensible. They're what we call data fetch providers. These are small Python modules that you can create to teach Opal how to connect to whatever data source that you have. They're already ready-made ones for uh, HTTP and Postgres and LDAP and a bunch of stuff. Um, but you can always customize it to whatever data source you are using. And the beauty is that each component is independent. Each uh, microservice for authorization is responsible for Uh, bringing itself to the state that it needs to answer authorization queries. It's it's basically a replicator pattern and it replicates everything in memory so it can answer things in a performant manner. Um, We basically, um, one of the things that brought us to build this, this way is inspiration from Netflix. So Netflix have adopted OPA early on to build the authorization for their applications. Um, and they started with this replicator pattern, they call it a distributor, uh, as part of the, there's a YouTube video from the CNCF that uh, uh, people can, uh, go watch if they want. Um, and in that replicator pattern, um, you bas- you basically fetch the data from the various sources and load it into the agent. And then you query the agent, um, Netflix, unfortunately didn't open source what they've built. So we took it upon ourselves to do so with Opal. Um, and and so Opal became the kind of like, I guess the defect way to manage a lot of OPA instances and uh, keep them up to date in real time. Another one of its advantages uh, is a zero, t- zero trust kind of layout. So each of the Opal clients or each of the microservices for authorization subscribes to updates through a PubSub channel, a lightweight PubSub channel. Uh, on top of web sockets, it, they subscribe to the policy topics for the policy and data that they need. And for each, they can have a, uh, an access token. So, um, the, each microservice for authentic, for authorization only gets the data and policy that it needs. So you don't have, have this, uh, um, issues with data access across the space and also the server itself. Uh, which when you're using Permit is the Permit Cloud, uh, doesn't have to have access to the data at all. So because it sends instructions on where to get the data, which can be completely local to you um, and not the data itself.
1: Very cool. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. As I was sort of looking, I was like, I thought Permit was handling sort of all these objects itself. And I was like, man, that's a, that's a very mission-critical service, like super high availability, high correctness, very low latency to, to be doing it. And I like that sort it of is. distributed, replicated pattern, like uh, how, it, how, it, how it flips that a little bit. That's pretty cool.
2: So we decoupled the control plane from the data plane. So yeah. the data plane remains with you, but we yeah. manage all of its intricacies for you without actually being aware of what's happening inside it. So yeah. that gives you uh, a security, you don't expose data to us, uh, we have a lot of most of our at this point most of our customers are healthcare companies i don't know exactly why but that's that's what ended up happening yeah. um and they're they're obviously hepa compliant and there's phis a lot of sensitive stuff they don't need to share the data with us it's it's it would be, create a lot more friction yeah um and uh, uh so that's the first part security the other part is availability So even if we're down and we're not down, down often, but still, uh, even if we're down, this doesn't affect us, the services consuming us at all because it's all handling, being handled locally. And as we touched also, it's really good for latency and performance because all those queries are done locally, memory to memory instead of going back and forth, uh, uh, round trips around the cloud.
1: Yep. All right. Very cool. I love that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about using Permit Practically. And I and I know that you recently launched a new product called Permit Elements. Ooh, tell, yeah. me, tell me about Permit Elements. What, what are they helping me with?
2: Yeah, so Permit Elements is really uh, one of my favorite things about the, the product. So we kind of touched on all the things that you need to build for permissions uh, or authorization. Um, but primarily when you think about it, authorization at the end of the day is a bunch of experiences that people need. And you've seen these experiences a billion times across a billion different applications, and you've probably built it yourself, build them yourself like a billion times. So uh, think about user management with the ability to assign roles, API key management, secrets management, audit logs. So all of these, instead of building them on top of permit, you get them ready-made. If you want to have user management in your application now you get a you go into an editor where you can customize how you want this to look and feel and how you want this to behave in terms of permissions for the permissions i'll make i'll double click at it in a second um you configure this and then you have a snippet that you can plug into your code and it's just ready to go you don't have to do anything else um and you can always, uh, I will say, you can always build your own specific costume you are on top of our API or on top of directly talking to the uh, policy engine. You can always do that. We never um, stop you from doing anything you want. But the main difference is that you don't have to, unless you really want to. And you probably don't because this is not unique to any product. This is not unique to any application. Um, we provide something that is more than good enough, that is flexible enough, that you can plug it in and forget about it um and there's also a lot of sub interfaces and experiences that are part of that so for example you build an audit log how do you make sure that nothing is missing from that audit log how do you make sure that you are rendering this in a way that it's easy for people to query and find the specific incident or issue that they have you need this both for your own internal use for your security and compliance for example or for your debugging but also your customers they do, they want to know what happened in their system if there like an incident happened they want to be able to see what happened but of course only within their tenant uh, so by working with permit you just get that out of the box but planning for it without thinking about it and you get it in a way that um that works a lot of times people with specifically with audit logs they um, a silly mistake that people do there is that they report the audit logs as events separately from the action itself. It's just like another thing that you report. But then there can be inconsistencies between what happened and what you reported. Um, so it's really important to generate the audit logs intrinsically from the permission checks but so that's one of like a best practice that you get out of the box by using permit and even and you even didn't think about it or we're, were aware that you need to do it that
1: yeah yeah i love like the first order benefit of this of just like hey you know everyone's building these same systems and by having these templates you can you can get that much quicker and, and and do that but then there's like like you're talking about second order effect of like as you're building out this system you can you can look at the template you can look at some of the stuff around it and be like oh i didn't even think of that problem, as I'm building out this feature, like more of like a feature level thing for me that that you've seen over and over, as, as you know, within the context of Auth, but also the the feature itself. So it's cool to, you know, just ways to to learn from yeah. from people that have gone before you.
2: Yeah, and a lot of times there's also experiences that you know you want to have, but you don't have the time to get to them. For so, for example, invites or approval flows. So the ability for like a user performs an action, another user approves it. Uh, or uh, requesting permissions user a can ask permissions from user b these you've seen these in all the uh, advanced applications but when you're building that application on your own it can take you a while to get that but it can improve both your business flow and the uh, user experience with your application dramatically and uh, you can and again you can get that out of the box which is the the main thing here um and uh, another thing that is tightly coupled with this is authorization for authorization. I already kind of mentioned it a couple of yeah, times. I was so gonna ask I, that I, better, I better I, I got to get by that, yeah. Yep. So uh, first of all, up till recently, ironically in Permit, when you use the product you, and you invited other users, you only had one role. Um, because of the recursive challenges of authorization for authorization. So being able to decide what users in the control plane for access control can do, that's that's authorization for authorization. And I think just saying those words, it can be, you can see how mind boggling it can be. Um, and so uh, we'll be gradually enabling you to do, completely use permit policy, the Permit Policy Editor for defining who can use the Permit Policy Editor. But for now, and also as kind of a good baseline for people that don't need the full power, you have the ability to map the roles that you create in the application, the roles that you can create dynamically. You can map them into meta permissions. You can map them into who can change the permissions, who can see what roles are available, who can assign those roles, who can see this uh, user management interface or invites interface that you've created. Um, and again, it, it, that's not something that you can do with drag and drop, but it gives you a depth of complexity that otherwise would probably take you, um, a lot of long, a long time to get to. I don't want to like, it's, it's months, let's be honest, it's months, maybe more, but I don't want to, I don't want to push the point.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. One last question just around off, and I want to talk about your background briefly, but okay. We talked about sort of the, the chronologic chronology of, of sort of. Um, access control, right? And often you see the admin, not admin, admin, not admin, super admin, ACLs, RBAC, ABAC, all that stuff. Should I, if I'm building a new product, should I sort of slowly go through those or something like that? Or should I start with ABAC, RBAC, ReBAC, like one of those, right? right, Does it make sense to sort of start at the end or, or does it make sense to sort of progress through those?
2: So I think it really depends on what you're building and what are your priorities at this point. Uh, I wouldn't jump on any policy just because you think you need it, because anyways, it's probably gonna change. Even if you, f- you think that this is the right flavor for you, it's a matter of time until another customer or another uh, uh, stakeholder or colleague comes in and asks for something that you haven't thought of. Uh, so for example, in, um, I mentioned that at Rookout, I built this five times. One of those times when was when a business partner, Cisco, that is also selling Rookout to the market, Uh, At one point they came in and said, we want our own back office. And I was like, huh, I didn't think of that one. Um, Life has a tendency to surprise you. And if you try and like map all the things in advance, you'll probably waste a lot of time and you'll end up building the wrong things and not actually build the core things that you need. So in general, if you're a startup or if your company that's wanna move high velocity, focus on what you need now and what I do recommend though, is to set the ground in a way that will make it easier for you to upgrade. So one easy way to do so is to work with a solution that already bakes in the best practices, or you can follow those best practices yourselves. Uh, and there's uh, on YouTube, you can find um, uh, a talk that I gave at OWASP uh, covering those best practices. But to, to recap quickly, you want to decouple your policy in code. You want the microservice. you want to have a microservice for authorization. Even if it initially just returns true for every query, you want to have that separation so you don't end up having drift in your code. Like once you plug it in into the application itself, they it's the authorization logic and the application logic start to merge like a developer comes in and said i just need another if condition here and i'll just add it there it's no biggie right but then it piles on and you come in come in like half a year later and now you you need to refactor everything line by line just to move from between models but if you do that decoupling and you use policy as code and you manage this in a real-time fashion that enables you to synchronize the data that you need when you need it, you'll be able to mutate or upgrade your application and your authorization layer separately. And then moving between models, moving between RBAC and ABAC, that's going to be uh, a lot easier for you. Instead of taking months, it will take you like a days or a weeks at most.
1: Very cool. Okay, sounds great. Well, I I just love all the way I'm getting sort of brain dumped on on the authorization, authentication, all, all this stuff. That's great. I want to talk... About your background, you know, you're, you're a serial founder. I've started a few different companies now. Rookout, as you mentioned, even, even ones before that. I, I, like number one, what have you learned? You know, this is now your third or fourth rodeo here. What have you learned um, in, in terms of being a founder?
2: Oof, So much. Yeah. Uh, what a pick. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, maybe I'll, I'll touch on things that I think that a lot of times um, founders that I talk to uh, miss. Um, I think a common one is, um, the difference and importance of product market fit and go to market fit. So product market fit is that your product jives well with your end users. They want to use it. They want to use it the way you present it. Uh, it brings them, it solves their problem. It brings them value and they engage with it in a good way. By the way, both of these fits are things that you aspire to. You never get to product market fit. You never get to go to market fit. There's Those are are things that you gradually, in in an infinite way, constantly try and improve. So product market fit is your product jives with the people using it. Go to market fit is your product connects with the market, sorry, your company connects with the market and communicates it in a way that gets people to discover and use your product. You can see that the two are connected. If people discover your product, but they're unhappy with using it, so you have go-to-market fit, but not product market fit, you're gonna have a bad time. If you have an amazing product that people that use it really, really enjoy, but no one wants to learn about it, no one discovers it, you're gonna really have a bad time. And you need to kind of evolve these two around the same time, gradually so they kind of go step by step and step with one another um i think that's one of the and a lot of time people confuse this they don't know what it, which one's which uh, it's kind of like authorization and authentication yep. like uh, they sound alike but and there's elements that are alike but they're in dif- in fact they're very very different and if you don't get them right you nothing's going to work
1: yeah i want to um, i want to i want to ask more about go to market fit and especially for you you know you are You've started multiple developer-focused companies, which I think is a hard market. To, it can be a hard market to reach, right? Where developers are sort of skeptical of, of marketing, at least in some way. Uh, and it's not saying you can't market to them, but I guess like how do you how do you market well to developers and and find go-to-market fit to to developers?
2: That's a terrific question. First of all, maybe I'll start with why. Like, yeah, you say it's harder. Like, a, a lot of Israeli founders like to just do cybersecurity. Uh, you go. Ooh, there are monsters in the wires. If you don't use this product, something is going to come and bite you in the ass. I hate that. I hate, even when I know that I have good technology to solve like a, an attack vector, I hate the fear mongering that you a lot of the time need to get to. In um, the end of the day, I think if you want to build a good product or a good company, um, you want to do so with empathy. You want to create something that touches on a problem that you experience yourself, something that you actually care about. That way you also, um, you're in sync, uh, intuitively with your customers and you're doing something that you're internally happy with because you're solving something that you actually care about. So it's, it's a win-win. It might be a harder play to do overall, but, um, for me, it's not a, just about the money. It's about building things that I care about. Uh, and I think it's, it's better for, for, for the soul, let's say. Um, in terms for marketing to developers, I think the, Best advice I can give there is not to market to developers. Uh, In general, I think nowadays you shouldn't market to anyone. You should build things that actually bring value. You should actually uh, do things that um, 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 promote solving the problem with your product or in general. Um, I saw an interview on a different podcast with uh, the Lex Friedman podcast. They interviewed Mr. Beast. And he asked them, how do you create uh, videos that a lot of people want to watch? And the answer there is, in the end of the day, you just create good videos. Like create something that people want and that that will work. It doesn't mean that you don't need to promote it. It doesn't mean that you don't need to find a go-to-market fit for it. That needs to be part of the design. You need to find a way to put it out there. But if you focus on building something valuable that people actually want... They'll want to talk to you about it. They'll want to, they'll be looking for it anyways. And then you just need to put it in the right place in the right uh, way for access. And it will grow from there.
1: Yep. Yep. How do you think about education as part of that, that, um, that motion?
2: So first of all, you shouldn't be patronizing. If you're coming in and saying, I need to educate the market. I need to teach everyone what's the right way to go. Then, well, people are not gonna be, especially developers. They're not. They're not gonna jive with that. But if you go and say, "Hey, I have a, I have some insights. I've explored this space. I've went through the problem myself. Here's our, here are some things that I think are interesting. Let's talk about them. Here are some tools that I've built that I think that can help you. People respond well to that. Um And I think. In the end of the day, it also creates healthy relationships. Like if you were coming in with an attitude of you want to help, and that's actually what you want to do, as opposed to oh, I'm gonna trick you. I'm not actually here to help. I'm I'm here to get you to buy something and like do a bait and switch. First, so especially with developers, but I think modern humans in general, they're not idiots. They, they it, you might get you might fool some of them for a little while. and You're not gonna fool everyone all the time. So it's better to actually bring in good intentions and good value and uh, focus on communicating it the best way you can. And most of the rest will um, not automatically sort itself, but will emerge out of this. You'll be able to discover where things work well and build on top of that and kind of double click on the things that work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree with you. And and yeah, like you're saying, you can't educate in like a, a patronizing way. I know better than you, but just being like, I've been here and shared this stuff and, you know, I've looked at a lot of the stuff on the, the permit site and, and blog and just like, man, I had a lot of questions about auth that are, that are tough. Uh, looking through that has been great talking with you for the last hour has been, has been really great and like figuring out some Thank of this auth stuff. So, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate the honesty on like when, when it's a good fit, when it's not all, all sorts of stuff like that. So thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, for people that want to find out more about you about permit, how can, how can they find out more?
2: Yeah, so about Permit, it's easy, just go to permit.io and uh, social media, Twitter, Reddit, elsewhere, Um, GitHub, you'll find it at permit.io. If you want to approach me, and I uh, encourage you to do so, I'm very open. People are kind of often surprised, uh, often I respond like on LinkedIn and elsewhere. I'm Weiss, Orweis O R W E I S on LinkedIn, GitHub, Twitter, etc. Shoot me a message. I'll, I'll I'm always happy to chat to uh, fellow developers, security practitioners, entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah, so uh, test me out. Uh, you'll, you'll be surprised. And um, I think the easiest way to talk both about Permit and with me is in our Slack community. So if you go into Permit.io, there's a Slack icon on the top that brings you into into our community, and you can just uh, DM me there or or talk to the rest of the Permit team there.
1: Awesome. Sounds great. So, uh, Or, you know, co-founder, CEO of Permit.io, thanks for coming on. I I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you very much. I had a blast.